This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, a Business Radio special from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. Amy Gutman, president of the University of Pennsylvania, in a conversation with the Honorable Joseph R. Biden, Jr., 47th Vice President of the United States. Today, we will enjoy a conversation with one of our nation's foremost statesmen and the Benjamin Franklin Presidential Practice Professor. If there ever were somebody who needed no introduction, I think you'll agree he's the one. So please join me in welcoming Penn's own Joe Biden. This reminds me of my orals every time I do this. Reminds you of your oral exams? My oral exams, yeah. You know what I mean? Sitting there with the president of the university and being asked questions. Uh, My orals were easier, but uh, good to see you. Okay. Well, with that, I have to ask you a hard question, right? Um, So I thought we should begin with something that's on, I think, everybody's mind, and uh, both across the nation, the world is talking about it, and it hits us right here at home. And as you know, everyone knows, this weekend, hundreds of thousands, probably millions, uh, marched um, for for our lives, right? And really, it was organized and conceived and executed by young people, um, many of whom are even younger than our, our wonderful students. So my question to you is, um, we have seen protests against gun violence before in this country, many times before. This seems, I'll speak for myself, seems to me different. Um, So let me ask you, what would make this a movement rather than simply a moment? I think it's already become a movement. Look, um, I've been involved in this this effort, this fight with rational gun policy. I think there's a Second Amendment. I think the Second Amendment is being very badly interpreted. It's not consistent with what the our founders intended, in my view. You saw Justice John Paul Stevens say that we should, uh, because it's been so prosecuted, that we should repeal the Second Amendment. It was about a standing militia. It's a long story. It won't go into all the legal side of that. I haven't thought it in law school. But, um, but there's rational and irrational policy. And uh, like many movements that occur, if I can make the analogy to uh, when I was uh, your age, when I was in undergraduate and graduate school in the middle of the 60s, um, the war in Vietnam and a lot of other things were going on, the completion of the civil rights movement. And there's a point in which there is things tip into um, uh, not being the exception, but being the rule. Um, what's happened here is the nation as a whole has uh, decided it can no longer, in my view, um, continue to turn a blind eye to uh, uh, prostitution in the Second Amendment. And no longer can turn a blind eye to the enormous damage being done, not just in our schools, but on our streets right here in Philly and Wilmington, Delaware, where I'm from every night. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so... I think what you're seeing here is something that is spontaneous. Now, I have, in each of these massacres that have occurred, going all the way back to Columbine, um, I've been sort of the designated guy for the administration when I was president, when I was vice president with the president. (laughs) When I was with the president. And um, the last major 
gun safety legislation that passed is the one that I wrote. It eliminated assault weapons, it eliminated the number of, of, of bullets that could be in, in, a, in a clip. Uh, it, uh, it, it brought into play for the first time the Brady Bill and the background checks. It set up the Nick system. It did it all. It only passed by seven votes, but it passed. And, uh, and, uh, and the so-called Biden crime bill had passed. And, uh, but it had, uh, in order to get it done, I had to agree that it only could be reauthorized for 10 years and had to be reauthorized in 10 years. But for what they call the hanging chads in Florida, it would still be the law. But um, President Bush let it lapse. And what happened was, I think, Madam President, is that... Um, Violent crime went down precipitously after the crime. Yeah, it does. And so it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. And so what happened was the impact of gun violence also diminished in the minds of most people except people living in inner cities. It diminished. And there was no, there was no energy behind the change that needed to take place. Again... And, um, and one of the things that, you know, when you're in public life or you're involved in, involved in campaigns, there's a thing, uh, a baseball expression, there's pace on the ball. And that is something that is really, really real. For example, those of you who are Democrats, if in fact you had a congressperson who agreed with you on everything, but supported a constitutional amendment to ban abortion, you probably wouldn't vote for them, most Democrats. Conversely, on the Republican side, you could have a congressman and be right on every single thing, but want to have rational gun policy, and people will vote against you. So when for the gun issue has been much, much more important for the gun manufacturers and the NRA and the gun owners than it has been for the rest of you. And so you voted for people, or you, not you, I'm using it in an editorial sense, voted for people who in fact were good on everything but wrong on gun. You still voted for them. Well, something snaps now. This has reached the point where for those people who think there's need for rational gun policy, it's risen in terms of the importance of the issue in the minds of the voters. That's the first really important point, I think, that has to be yeah. made. The second important point that has to be made is that um, this was spontaneous. I spent time with the parents. I, privately, there's more, there's at least... 75 parents who've lost children over the last eight years have my private phone number because I spend time with them. I know what it's like to lose a child, and I'm able to be of some help with them. And I've talked to them all, particularly all of Sandy Hook people. This case, this was totally, thoroughly spontaneous on the part of the students. There was no adult inspiration for this. They insisted. And that's why guys like me, who led on the gun issue, did not show up to speak. We wanted to make sure everybody knew this was a spontaneous, thoroughly spontaneous effort on the part of young people. And what they've done is they've forced an awful lot of elected officials to, they just ripped the Band-Aid off. They've looked at them and said, why are you not willing to do things like, say, people on the terrorist list can't buy a gun? Why are you not willing to eliminate and go down the line? There's no, there, and they can't look them in the eye. Because the vast majority of members of the Congress who are reluctant to support rational legislation are doing it because of campaign contributions and doing it because they're afraid of that base in their own party. It seems unrelated, but there's another piece here. The two things that have changed most in the last uh, 10 years that have altered and broken our political system are gerrymandering and unlimited funding. What that means is Republicans in Congress never get beaten from the right. I mean, from the left, they only get beaten from the right. 
Democrats don't get beaten from uh, uh, the right. They, I mean, excuse me, Republicans get beaten from the right. Democrats get beaten from the left. And so we have a polarization of the parties in ways that don't reflect where the vast majority of the American people are. And so the worry is, when I talk to some of my Republicans, why won't you vote for that? I said, Joe, you don't understand, man. If I do that, all these guys show up. It's only 30% of my constituents, but everyone comes out and votes. And secondly, so-and-so will pour in four or $500,000 to take me on. I can't afford that. And so what's now happening is there's a counterweight. And I'll conclude with this. One of the things that we underestimate here, and you students know this in your gut, you have more influence on your parents than they have on you. And I'm not being facetious when I say that. Let me give you a concrete example. If you go home and sit down at your dinner table uh, when, when the semester ends or spring break or Christmas or wherever, and you're sitting at the table and you say, you know, mom or dad, I met so-and-so, candidate for such-and-such. I really like her. I think she's really solid. I really think, etc. Even though your parents may have be of a different persuasion, I promise you when they go to bed, they look at you and say, Amy, must, Amy really likes that woman. There must be something there. Because we take great faith and stock in what our kids arrive at independently and really believe. These millions of kids, and they're millions, they're impacting on their parents' sense of responsibility. And you're going to see it in the polls. You're going to see it change. So this is already a movement, yeah. and it's spontaneous, it's real, and I predict you it's not going to stop. So what resonates very strongly with our students, and I've spoken to a lot of our students about it, is a very strong message of this movement, which they call REV, Register, Educate, Vote. And you couldn't walk but a few yards in D.C. when they're without someone with a clipboard that was actually registering young people as well as older people, but a lot of young people to vote. And these are young people who don't yet have, the, some of them have, aren't old enough to have the right to vote. They really appreciate the power of that. And I wonder if that also could be a very important sea change, because if you look at the percentage of young people who vote compared to the percentage of people our age who vote, it's... You're not as old as I am. Well, we're all in the same bucket here. Um, it's... Uh, it's much, you know, it's um, much too low. Would you, you would, uh, well, I mean, look, isn't that an important part yes, it is. of For what example, should be happening and a message to our students? Millennials and those who are younger like you all are, the students here, because you're not qualified to be millennials, you are in a situation where um, you, you're an incredible generation. And I know you're tired of hearing this, people say it, it's not, but it's, it's a fact. You're the best educated, you're the most engaged, you're the most generous, you're the least prejudiced, by every yeah. measure, yeah. except one thing. Right. You really are lousy in terms of participating in politics. No, you really are. <laughs> you really are. And the percentage of vote between the ages of 18 and 24 is abysmal. Yeah. Abysmal. Abysmal. No, I really, it makes me angry, I'll tell you the truth, because you can change it. If we just increased by 10% the number of you who went out and registered and voted, if you just reached the national average, everything would be different. Not, I don't mean marginally, everything would be different. 72,000 votes. And the outcome of the last election would have been different. 72,000 votes. That was the difference. Well, look at Alabama. Well, look at Alabama. I went down in Alabama. I'm the only guy uh, uh, who uh, was invited to go in there as, as, as one of my, my uh, colleagues says, African-American colleagues, you're the only white boy invited to Alabama. Well, because the guy who ran and won used to work for me. 
I know him well. He headed up Biden for president back when I was a 42-year-old kid running for the presidency of the United States at, at Sanford Law School. And we were able to draw crowds of three and 4,000 people for him and with him. He won a close race, but he energized your generation. He energized young people. And so it's, all, it's just all on the margins. And if you ever have to wonder yeah. whether or not a single vote matters, I'm the only guy that went out and campaigned for Connor Lamb. I know Pennsylvania, it's like my, home, my native state. I've been in this state my whole career I, because Philadelphia covers over 65% of the market and I, I was covered as much as anybody because of the rules you have to cover Delaware. I'm as well known in Pennsylvania as a senator as the senators were. And I went in and guess what? 600 votes, 600 votes. Now that was a gigantic win, but 600 votes. There are twice votes. as many people right here today. As so guys, margin. it really That's does matter. And, and you yeah. have no excuse. There's no, no, I really mean it. You have no excuse. There's no place to hide. Plato, to paraphrase Plato, he said, the penalty good people pay for not being involved in politics is being governed by men worse than themselves. You deserve exactly what you get if you don't vote. So, it's a good message. It's an important message. Thank you, change it. Yeah. Absolutely. Very. So let's move to um, foreign policy. Uh, you and Michael Carpenter co-authored a piece which I found very important and uh, provocative um, entitled How to Stand Up to the Kremlin, right? Wasn't that the title? How to Stand Up to the Kremlin. And in it, you said that a lot depended on civil society for actors, in other words, non-government action as well as government action. But you really focused on how, in this climate, non-government actors could make a difference. Would you say some more about what you think we and others can do in the presence of the, I'll just call it a threat, of what Russia is trying to do, both here at home and in England and around the world? Well, President Gutman provided me an enormous platform to set up the Biden uh, Center here and, um, and gave me uh, um, uh, the funding for some very serious staff. People who, if I had run and won, would be running the State Department, the Defense Department. I mean, really, very, very across the board, highly respected people in both parties. And uh, Mike Carpenter is one of those guys who was a major figure in the Defense Department and works here at the yeah. end of now. And uh, what we wrote about was the pernicious influence of, of Russia on one thing that we need the most the post-World War II liberal world order. Right. If you look at the mission statement for the Biden school diplomacy here, it's about maintaining that liberal world order. Everything. Say what you mean by that. Well, not, I will. People, there are a lot of people here who study international relations and international policies, but it's, it's a very important phenomenon of the post-World War II era. After World War II, principally the United States and Britain, but all the West got together and said... What institutional structures do we build to make it much more difficult for individuals and nations to abuse power in the future? So you set up everything from the UN to the situation, the World Bank, NATO, to the EU later on, a whole range of international institutions. They're designed to make it difficult for any one player to go out and abuse their power to undo the civil society that existed. And it's been the most successful um, uh, effort in, uh, in, in, in modern history. And for 70 years, it's kept, the, they basically kept the, the peace. More than, uh, fewer people are dying today, notwithstanding what you read on your phone, than any time in, in the history of the world. We're in a situation where we have the strongest alliances, literally, in the history of the world. We're in a situation where, but that's being frayed now. And what Russia is doing, in a very calculated way, 
trying to undermine the very institutions that prevent them from exercising and abusing power. And that's why they're trying to dismantle NATO, they're trying to dismantle the EU, they're trying to dismantle most of the international institutions that exist, because that allows them free reign. Simultaneously, in the United States, Britain, and other places, there's a rise of two twin pillars that are incredibly dangerous to our security overall and our well-being. One is this, is this half-baked spurious nationalism, which is America first, and there's a zero-sum game. You win, I lose. I win, you lose. Instead of building on what we have been for the last 70 years, this notion that America benefits, humanity benefits when, when countries become more democratic, when they become more open. It's in our, overwhelmingly in our interest that Europe be, be democratic, free, and whole. It's overwhelmingly in our interest to see to it because those institutions, when they exist, are less likely to generate conflict. And so it's in our interest. And so what's happened is this rise of this nationalism coupled with this phony populism. Phony populism, by that I mean the idea that whatever problem you have, whatever problem exists, is because of the other. It's because of that black guy. It's because of that immigrant. It's because of that the other are causing my problems. And it all takes place at a moment when you are going to be teaching here at Penn or other great universities, and you're going to be teaching a course about how we did not understand we were in the midst of a fourth industrial revolution because of digitalization, because of Moore's Law, because of globalization, because of a whole range of things. An awful lot of people are frightened and economically being left behind. It's generated more wealth than any time in the history of the world, but it's also generated the widest income gap in the history of the United States of America. No democracy can be sustained when there is not generally, generally equal growth. The basic bargain's been broken. Between 1978 and 2008, excuse me, between 1948 and 78, Productivity rose 91%. Middle class wages, productivity grew. Middle class wages grew the same amount. Wages grew 90%. Between 78 and 08, what happened, uh, excuse me, in 16, wages grew, productivity grew 68%. Wages grew 13%. The bargain's been broken. It used to be a deal. If I participated in the enterprise and it generated income and profit, I got to participate in the profit. Not anymore. Some of that's because of globalization. Some of that's because of digitalization. Some of that's because of... But a lot of it has to do with bad policy we've slipped into. I have a cartoon in my office that my staff keeps trying to take down. And uh, for the last five years... I'm not joking, because it's provocative. It's from the New Yorker. It's a picture of a great big rotund guy in a black turtleneck sweater, black mask, and black beret sitting at a table being interviewed by, interrogated by a police officer. And there's a great big bag on the table with a dollar sign on it. And he's looking at the interrogator and said, how was I supposed to know he was a job creator? (laughs) Since when did the only job creators become investors? My father sold an awful lot of GM products as a manner of his major GM dealership. He created tens of thousands of jobs. Everybody out there, not just the investor, creates jobs. But the distribution of income is wrong. It's not consistent. So what happens is people are angry. So can I just, I'm going to play professor now just for a moment. How, what about standing up to Russia here? I mean, how does, because I know it relates, but. Well, well, you're exactly right. I should have. The reason Russia is having the effect it's had is playing to all of these fears in Europe. And it also is engaging in cyber warfare. And it is invading the sovereignty of so many countries, the way they attempt to manipulate what's going on in the cyberspace. And so, for example, um, 
Putin, I, who I know fairly well personally, is one tough guy who has, uh, um, I think, has no really moral center to him. It's, no, no, no. I, by he the said way, something even worse to his face. Right? Well, so I, I, it's more than worse. Look, no, he he all, took it as a compliment. Yeah, all politics. It's true. It's true. Look, Tell all the story, folks. You know, all politics is personal. You have to understand what makes the other person tick. You have to understand it, particularly foreign policy. All foreign policies is a logical extension of personal relationships with a lot less information to go on. So when I was last with Putin for five hours in his office, and afterwards went in his office, I returned to the office and I happened to be eye to eye with him. I looked at him, I said, he had an interpreter, I had an interpreter. And I said, Mr. President, I'm looking in your eyes and you have no soul. It wasn't meant to, it wasn't meant to be derogatory. He looked me back in the eye, so we understood each other. He said, quote, we understand one another. Not a joke. This is deadly, deadly, deadly earnest. You got to understand what the other guy, the other woman is about. And that's what he's about. It's about deconstructing this liberal world order. So he has more room to abuse power. Because look, Russia is a third world country, at least a second world country. Not a joke. Their population is declining precipitously, 148 million people now. They have the highest rate of alcoholism and, and, uh, um, and, and, and uh, uh, the, their uh, life expectancy is increasingly diminishing, not getting higher. They're a federation where a significant part of the, federa- part of the federation is not Russian, it is Muslim. They are a second-rate country, but for, but for nuclear weapons. They have enormous resources. They have no means by which to generate those resources to put to good use. They need Western technology. You'd think the answer was, what we tried to do, was open them to the West, give them association uh, status with NATO, etc. But he chose a different route. And the reason he did, which is a critical point, it's a kleptocracy. This is not about the Russian people versus the United States or the West. This is about the Russian people versus a kleptocracy, a small group of men who are not so much ideologically driven, but driven to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars, which is they control. They control. And the reason why they're going after the West as hard as they can to deconstruct these democratic institutions is they don't want their people to get a whiff of what democracy is really like. By the way, you realize that, you've seen it recently, the involvement, their, their, their aggressive and illegal and international violations of the sovereignty of Ukraine. They're telling the Ukraine, they're telling the Russian people, we are not involved in Ukraine. It is a federal crime in Russia if you report the death of a Russian soldier. You say, no, we, we, we are not involved. We are not involved in Ukraine. So this is one big charade, and they cannot let the truth come through. And we should be much more aggressive in making it clear to the Russian people what is going on. And we're not. We're not. We used to have things like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which, by the way, are required to be. I used to head them as as the head of the Foreign Relations Committee. They're required to have journalistic integrity. They are not allowed to spread propaganda. For real. Not a joke. Not a joke. But just the truth. And we have been too silent about Russian engagement in nefarious activities that are dangerous, to the point that I suggested in this article that there should be a 9-11 type commission in Europe to investigate the degree to which the Russians have interfered surreptitiously in elections in Europe. And I get a call from the former head of NATO, Rasmussen. I'm going over to see him shortly. 
And because we put together a group of about eight heads of state, we're setting up such a commission. Because the one way to stop this kind of nefarious activity the Russians are engaged in, expose what it is. Expose what it is, like, like, like happened in the French election. They exposed what Russia was doing, and it had no impact. But in Italy, they did not. They did not. And they were extremely successful in deconstructing yeah. that government. So there's, there's so much more to say yeah. about it, but it is, we have to stand up. We have to stand up. And, I'm not, and we have to be, by the way, just like in the middle of the Cold War, we have to be re ready to talk to Russia about anything that has to do with our mutual interest, like strategic doctrine on nuclear weapons, instead of deciding that we're going to have a race for, on nuclear weapons. So there's a lot. We have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And right now we're doing neither. We continue with a special presentation on Business Radio powered by Warden. University of Pennsylvania President Amy Gutman in conversation with former Vice President Joe Biden. Okay. Now for the real questions. Um, let's start with... Let's start with an engineering student. Shyam, are you here? S-H-Y-A-M. So there. see you. Yes, great. Let's... So... Are you mad I didn't say Einstein? So... Are you angry I didn't say Einstein? I'm sorry, go ahead. The, here, I'll read the question, but you stay standing. What advice do you have for someone running for office today? Great question. Several pieces. One, know what you're willing to lose over. If you don't know what you're willing to lose over, get engaged in another project. You'll do better, you'll be happier, and, uh, and you'll be more successful. But I really mean it. You have to know what you believe and what you are unwilling to trade status for and give up something you care deeply about. The second thing I would say is that uh, uh, never underestimate the ability of the human mind to rationalize. Well, I can vote for this even though I really don't agree with it because it's a useful thing for me to be able to do because it will help me get this and that and the other thing. It's a rationalization that I've found of the people I most admire in both parties has never, ever, ever worked. It takes you down a rabbit hole. The third thing I would say is that uh, um, uh, understand that still the overwhelming currency, the, the coin of the realm, is your word, is your word. For your constituency to know that whatever you say you mean, and whatever you say you'll do, you'll do. Because there is reward in that. What surprises me so much about my colleagues today, my former colleagues, the new folks in the Senate and the House, is they don't realize that you reward people, even if they disagree with you, for saying something they really believe and giving a firm rationale for it and knowing that they're not going to make you happy. You still reward them, unless it's on the extreme unless they're on the extreme. I, I'm the only, my son Bo and I are the only two Democrats to win the southern part of the state of Delaware. I'm the only person in the United States Senate that was able to, all the entire time he was in the Senate, get a majority, the only Democrat, to get a majority of the white male vote and 98% of the black vote. Because in southern Delaware, they talk at you like this, and it's a different state, for real. If you want to know about Delaware, read Mitchell's book, Chesapeake. Delmarva Peninsula has been isolated for over 220 years. We were a slave state to our great shame. Very conservative, very different. But they poll people down there and say, oh, damn, I don't, don't agree with the boy. But he tells you what he thinks, honest. I'll take it. I'll take it. It matters that your word, and it's not situational. There's a new way of giving your word today in the Senate. Oh, yeah, I'll be there. I'll vote for you. I'll vote for that. And then the vote comes along and says, geez, I didn't know it was going to hurt me on this, and so I can't. Your word is your word is your word is your word. 
I think they're the three most important things you should know about getting engaged in public life, and I hope you do. Ryan Young, is Ryan here? Ryan, great. So here's the question. What do the meetings between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un and eventually Kim's meeting with President Moon mean for U.S. diplomacy in Asia? It's unknown right now, and I, but I'll tell you what I think. And nobody knows. Anybody gives you an answer to that, disregard them. Um, uh, number one, in my humble opinion. Um, number one, Xi Jinping, who I, uh, I've said this to this audience before, I know better than any other world leader because I've spent more time with him. I've spent 25 hours of private dinners with him, um, just he and I, because his predecessor uh, and, uh, and, and my, my boss, Barack, thought we should get to know one another. So I traveled about 17,000 miles in China with him, 7,000 miles here, and we went and we had a lot of serious discussions. And um, uh, Xi Jinping is, knows uh, um, what he wants. What he wants is he wants a peninsula that preferably is nuclear-free, but absolutely necessarily not dominated by the United States of America and the West, and with significant forces on that peninsula. And you have uh, the uh, president of South Korea wanting to avoid almost at all costs, short of surrender, open war because immediately 160,000 South Koreans would die just from artillery fire. Nothing, I mean, with, without use of any weapon at all. Because of so much heavy artillery that is within less than 60 miles of, uh, of the capital of South Korea. Um, and so he is very concerned about the bellicoseness of the United States policy right now and the taunting of the North Korean uh, president. In North Korea, I think what he wants is three things, and uh, all two of the three are very, very dangerous. One, he has reached the conclusion that if he is a nuclear power, he is guaranteed that no regime change will take place because the alternative to take him down is so disastrous for the peninsula and for the region that no one, quote-unquote, would do it. Secondly, what he wants, he wants to be in a position where he is able to economically have the benefits of the South and see a unification with control from the North. That's not going to happen, but that's what, that's, that's, the, that's the hope. But thirdly, he is worried about isolation. He's worried about isolation. He's done a remarkable job, if you think about it, in the last four months. A remarkable job of essentially when the, when the noose was tightening on him and the economic um, uh, uh, the economic price they were paying was getting higher and higher. What did he do? He decided to, I think, make a very smart play. He made the play at the Olympics. He appealed to uh, um, South Korean fear and came off as we should talk. Maybe things can get better with us because he was scared to death of the Trump administration's rhetoric about you know, this, uh, what do you call him, this little guy? Anyway, you know, the, um, and, uh, and so the South was very, very concerned about whether or not there would be, uh, you know, actually an open war. And so many people would die. And so uh, I think he found a way temporarily out. But he's got a dilemma now, too. He's in a position where he's going to have to deal with the prospect of some kind of long-term answer to ameliorating the continued escalation on the nuclear side, or eventually the sanctions are going to start to fall back in place worldwide. And so I think the problem, I, I compliment the administration for being willing to sit down and negotiate. I don't want to be critical because I may be dead wrong about this, but let me tell you what I do know. I do know having a summit before you've worked out the details is something that doesn't happen. 
It's a very dangerous way to go about it. And so I hope that the administration has decided what constitutes a victory for them. What is the end goal they're looking for? And I hope they realize this is going to be a long process, a process. It's going to take months to years to get to a place where there's been diminishment of tensions, a pulling back on the nuclear threshold, and an agreement whereby Japan, South Korea, China, the United States are all on the same basic page about what has been worked out with North Korea. And that's really, this, this is a very intractable problem. We weren't able to solve it. Our two predecessors weren't able to solve it. But one thing we, I do know, I believe, and that is you've got to have Japan, South Korea, and the United States all on the same page. And if you look what's happening now, Japan is reaching out directly to North Korea. And I would argue, I don't know, I would point out that um, it's because of, let me say it another way. My dad used to have an expression. He'd say, the only war that's worse than one that is intended is one that is unintended. What people worry a great deal about in the region is the unintended first shot being fired. The unintended. The idea that if you're certain I'm about to attack you, you're not going to wait to be attacked. Up to now, that has always been in question. But the rhetoric up to now has been, well, and especially with a man I know well, he's very, very bright. I led the effort to prevent him from being a, uh, the ambassador of the United Nations and defeated him, a guy named Bolton. He is a very different view, a very aggressive view, and I don't know where that takes us. Um, and I don't know where the president, I, I, I don't know who the president's listening to. <laughs> but I do think if I were in his spot, I would have reached out and had, I, I, I would have been willing to talk. Would have been willing to talk. That's a good thing. But it can't be haphazard. This has to, I, I'm just praying that he has done his homework. Now, I'm not being a wise guy when I say that. Keep in mind, this is a man who never been involved in any of these issues before, didn't expect to win, won, hadn't even put together a transition team that he was going to bring in because he never thought he was going to win. And so this is learning on the job. And uh, at least up to now, there has not been a lot of evidence that he is uh, fastidious about learning. Hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Cleo Sun, a first-year student. Cleo? Hi. Hi. Um, looking back at your work with President Obama, what things do you miss most? Well, I miss our lunches together. For real. No, look, this guy's, the president's become a close personal friend. Um, most of the, uh, there are a group of uh, vice presidential scholars who have rewritten a lot since uh, we left. And whether it's true or not, uh, most of them argue that there's never been a president and a vice president that have been as close personally with one another. I think there, I think there was one other that was closer. Um, and, uh, and that, um, uh, we uh, um, we had each other's back. Um, when the president asked me to join him, it's now public knowledge, I said, no, I did not want to be vice president. I genuinely did not want to be vice president. Because all the vice presidents is standby equipment, uh, a uh, breaks the tie vote and reads the results of the Electoral College vote in the House, of the, the House of Representatives. But things have changed so drastically in terms of all the problems the president faces 
he or she has to be in a position where there's somebody whose judgment they trust and who they trust in terms of their being willing to be uh, consistent with what the president wants done. And when I when we finally worked this out after some time that I would take the job, uh, I told the president that I would be loyal to him and if we ever had a fundamental or moral disagreement, I would resign. I would develop prostate cancer. <laughs> By the way, not a joke. I would not, and I told him straight up. He's, he's written about it, and he knows I meant it. But I felt that he and I were politically simpatico, and we had the same value set. And as a consequence of that, we became very close friends. Our wives are very close friends. I have a young granddaughter that's here. I'm going to embarrass her at Penn. She's a freshman. Uh, her sister and she are extremely close with uh, Melania. I'm Melania. <laughs> well, actually, they know the other Melania, but with Malia and Sasha. Uh, my uh, Sasha is. Um, you know, my, when I go on vacation, when my son and his family go on vacation, uh, uh, Sasha goes on vacation. My granddaughter just spent her spring break with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with Sasha. They're really, they're in the same class, same small class. When they decided to move to Washington after getting elected to the Senate, they asked me what, where I thought they should go. I put them in touch with my son-in-law, my, my son and my daughter-in-law. And they become really very, very close personal friends. And But I want to make one thing clear. Barack made the first friendship bracelet, not me. Uh, I, uh, uh. But you know, when you see and you watch another woman or man under enormous pressure, enormous pressure, and you watch them react, and you watch them react in the way Barack has, it generated nothing but admiration. He's the brightest president I've ever served with, and I've served with eight, just in pure, raw, gray matter, the grasp of data and information. He's the brightest person I've ever knew. And he's the most self-aware president I've ever worked with. By self-aware, I mean he has no illusions about himself or about the circumstance he finds himself. I remember when there was one particular congressman that early on was extremely rude, almost evidencing a prejudice in the Oval Office. After the meeting was over, the president opens the door, the Oval and all the congressmen, whoever is meeting, walk out, and I'm always at all those meetings. And I started to follow him out, and he grabbed me. He said, well, can you stick back a second, Joe? Everybody asked, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go talk to him. And he said, don't. I said, I'm not going to let him talk to you like that ever again. It's wrong. And he said, Joe, you don't understand. He said, you got to take the good with the bad. He said, the truth of it is, I wouldn't be. He said, do you think I would have beaten you? Do you think I would have beaten Hillary had I not gotten an overwhelming percentage of the black vote? He said, what do you think happened to him? He said, you take the good with the bad, pal. But I, I, uh, I enjoyed his company, and I, I think he enjoyed mine. And I knew it was going to work the night we both got nominated. One of my granddaughters came to me and said, Pop, can we have, and this one referred to the president as Bawak at the time, can we have Bawak as kids come and sleep with us over here? And Bawak's cousins come and sleep, <laughs> me meaning, meaning the first lady's um, brother's children. And so we called, Jill called down my wife, and they came, and they, we emptied the room, took the beds out, brought in sleeping bags, and I knew it was going to work. It's going to sound corny. As I left to go over to the be sport and be, be nominated, I opened the door, and I saw a total of seven kids, little black boys and white girls and white boys and black girls, sleeping in the same sleeping bag with their heads popping out, saying goodnight. I knew, I knew it was going to work. Uh -huh. Wonderful.
Um, Henry Underwood, okay, a sophomore from England who studies communications. Mr. Vice President, how do you maintain good working relations and effective team dynamics in a high-pressure environment like the White House? Well, uh, you treat everybody with respect. Not a joke. Every, every single person is entitled to be treated with dignity. And there is never a circumstance, never a circumstance, no matter what the status of the person working in the White House is to treat them with disrespect. Never. I, and I mean never. And we never did. We never did. Whether it was the cleaning ladies who came in and cleaned their offices at night, or whether or not as the National Security Advisor. You treat with respect, number one. Number two, uh, it's important to get to know one another. Guys, you can't let um, networking become a verb. Not a joke. You gotta look people in the eye. You gotta say hi to them, you gotta get to know them. And there wasn't a single person who worked for me that I didn't get to know or people who worked in the White House. So I had very close friendships with the President's National Security Advisors as well as his Chiefs of Staff. I spent a lot of time with, uh, with the, the, the folks that worked for him and we interchanged. We had basically a unified staff. When we got to the White House, I knew more of the people we were appointing to the cabinet than the president did. I mean, I, he knew them, he picked them. I happen to agree with them, that's not why he picked them. But I knew them personally for a long time. Tom Donlan, the National Security Advisor, was, used to work for me. I would just go down the list. And so we had this staff where we knew one another, and we had essentially a unified staff. Steve Reschetti, my chief of staff, is here and now uh, up here at Penn. Uh, and, uh, you know, he can tell you. He has long, deep personal relationships. And it matters showing up. So, you know, it's just like any other relationship. When you have a close friend who lost their mom, will you show up, man? And let them know you know. If you have somebody who you work with who's going through a tough time, Takes, it matters to stop and say, can I, what can I do? Can I help? That's how our White House worked. If you notice, you never heard in eight years, in eight years, you never heard of a conflict between the president and the vice president's staff. Not one single time. And, 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 you never heard one single scandal out of that administration. So, fabulous questions, and our thanks to you for giving us the opportunity to hear you speak your mind on such an amazing range of important questions. So join me in thanking Thank Vice you. President Biden. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.